Amen. Amen. Brenda, thank you so much. And I want us to put into practice what uh, Brenda has uh, been sharing about regarding Scripture memorization. We've started our series over the book of Hebrews. Last week, we started memorizing. We were going to memorize for September Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4. And we did Hebrews 1, a verse and a half last week. And we're going to finish verse 2 this morning together. All right? Let's see the verses up on the screen. So we'll give you some of the text here, and then we'll just slowly peel off some words. You ready? Here we go. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Here's the new part. Whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Say that again. Whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Again, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. All of it. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Let's peel off some words there. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Oh, we're doing great. Let's peel off a few more of those words, all right? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. All right, let's go. No words. Are you ready? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Amen. Whoa. God be praised. Oh, huh? yeah. Awesome. 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 Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. So it's about halfway through the month. We've got two more Sundays to go, and we'll do verse 3 next week. And then we'll conclude with verse 4. It gets a little tricky here in these uh, other verses, but, but it's tricky, but God has made us smart. Has he not? Amen? Amen. 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 And, and so to just echo Brenda's why, as I was thinking about her faith story and our memory work here, the question came to me, and it's a heavy question, it needs to be asked, what's going to go through your mind when you're in the back of an ambulance? See, now's the time to make that decision. See, make that decision now. 
And that decision is I'm, I'm hiding your word in my heart. Your word is going to pass through my heart. Your word is a, um, a, a garrison in which my heart is kept in protective custody. That's why we memorize the word. We memorize the word because it's a chaotic world out there. Amen. Amen. It is. Which leads me to our message today. It's a chaotic world. And so I've titled our message. I'm going to put a tag in our message this morning. Rumble strips, the sweet sound of safety. Say that with me. Say that with me. Rumble strips, the sweet sound of safety. Amen. Amen. So this week... I read a fascinating study uh, from a peer-reviewed academic journal called um, Accident Analysis and Prevention. Did you know that such a journal is in public? Yeah, it's true. Accident Analysis and Prevention. And so it, it's, a, it's a, a scholarly journal that analyzes automobile accidents and then uh, offers solutions toward prevention, accident analysis and prevention. And you may say, what is my pastor doing reading that? I'm glad you asked. Stay with me here. The article is titled, The Alerting Effect of Hitting a Rumble Strip, a Simulator Study with Sleepy Drivers. Huh? The alerting effect of hitting a rumble strip, a simulator study with sleepy drivers. So what they did was they took a study group and this study group did a research project about how driving onto rumble strips. Anybody here driven onto a rumble strip? Yeah. And you hear something and you feel something, right? And it's both annoying, but for good reason. So the study group did a research project on, on how driving onto rumble strips affects sleep-deprived drivers. And so here was the research question. There's always a research question, right? So here's the research question. How long does someone stay alert when they drive over a rumble strip? That's a good question, right? So you're sleepy. You drive into a rumble strip, it jolts you awake, you're alert. Well, how long does that last? So what they did was they took 35 uh, workers who had just pulled a full night shift, and they put them, you say, how do you do a research project? Well, you can't do it out on the road, of course. So you do a simulator. So they took 35 workers who had just pulled a full night shift and they put them one by one in a simulator and so they measured how sleepy they were before uh, you know while they were driving and then eventually they you know they've been up all night they're sleep deprived they hit the rumble strip and then they awaken well how long do they stay awake that's the question how long do they stay awake so so well they did this study and predictably they learned that Rumble strips keep you awake. Newsflash. But here's the interesting question. Here it is. Here it is. Here it is. The alertness from the jolt of the rumble strip, the alertness, the awakeness that they felt lasted 
five minutes. Five minutes. That's it. And it doesn't matter what kind of rumble strip was used. And, and so the point is, you need more than one rumble strip. The, the, the point is that we need a constant reminder of the danger of drifting. The danger of drifting, the peril of drifting, which leads us to our text today in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Meet me in your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Because our passage today is what we might call a rumble strip passage. That's what this is. That's what we're reading. These verses help us pay more careful attention to what we've been taught by Jesus and about Jesus, who he is and what he's done and the entirety of our faith. So it's a passage to warn us about and keep us from the danger of drifting, the peril of spiritual drowsiness. Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or obedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Now this is God's Word. Amen? So, the book of Hebrews, we've said, is, is really a sermon. It's a sermon manuscript. The sermon to the Hebrews. And we have considered the outline, and we've said that you know, the big picture of the sermon to the Hebrews is Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And all throughout Hebrews, uh, we read and hear that Jesus is better than. He's better than the angels. That's chapters 1 and 2. He's better than Moses. That's chapter 3. He's better than Joshua. That's chapter 4. Chapters 5 through 7 tell us that he's better than this mysterious priest Melchizedek that we meet in Genesis who interacted with Abraham. Jesus is better than Melchizedek. And, and then in chapters 8 through 10, Jesus is better than the entire tabernacle, temple system. And then application, Jesus is the better way of life, Hebrews 11 through 13. So, so Jesus is better. Now, uh, good sermons will have application throughout. And so what we see is that there are application points to the sermon to the Hebrews. We hear about doctrine, and then we also hear about duty. We hear about what is taught, and then we hear about what needs to be lived based on what is taught. 
And you know, when you read the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians 1 through 3 is typically doctrine. Ephesians 4 through 6 is duty. Uh, Colossians 1 and 2 are about um, well, how, what we need to think about God. And then Colossians 3 and 4 is how we need to live based on what we think, you see. So, so there's this interplay between doctrine and duty. Uh, it's not just, this is not just theoretical, there's application to be implemented. And so interspersed throughout the sermon to the Hebrews, and remember, this is a sermon, so it's going to be a little more of a dance back and forth uh, as the speaker talks to the congregation, and there's going to be some repetition and restatement. And here, interspersed, are five rumble strip passages, five sections, and you can see them there, at Hebrews 2, 4, 6, 10, and specifically 12. And they actually tend to intensify uh, the longer the message goes. These rumble strips. Now, church family, rumble strips are not meant to comfort us. Rumble strips are meant to awaken us. Come on, wake up. Eyes up. Let's go. Pay attention. They're meant to keep us alive. Think about it. Think about it. The God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who sustains us by the word of his power. That's what we'll learn next week in our memory work. This God loves us enough and cares about us enough to take notice of us. God is paying attention to us. He loves us. He cares about us. He cares for our safety. He cares for our security. So my security rests in God who desires me to be with him. With so, therefore, not once, but five times, God sends these rumble strips. He says, Randy, this is a sinful broken, fallen world. Uh, and Randy, I'm in the process of making all things new, and we're in this now and not yet season, and I want you to be a part of the new heavens and the new earth, and, and uh, I am going to see to it that you are going to finish the race. I want you to know what will imperil that, and I want you to avoid regret. I want you to know where the danger zones are. I want you to come home safely. And so Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, uh, it's important that I mention this because it's not, you know, some of you may be new to Christianity and you may be hearing this and you're, you're thinking, well, this is, just an, this is just another angry sermon by an angry pastor by an, about an angry God. And that's not what this is. This is a loving father who has a protective heart for his children. So Hebrews 2, 1 through 4, testify to God's protective love. That's what I want you to hear. And so, so as we consider these four verses today, I, I want us to think about two key words here, two key words, uh, drift and focus. Drift and focus. The problem of spiritual drift the problem of spiritual drift, and then the solution of a fixed 
focus. Spiritual drift, fixed focus. That's where we're going. Let's talk about the problem of spiritual drift. Now, if you read chapter 1, before you get to Hebrews 2, 1 through 4, you wouldn't think anybody would drift. Because Hebrews chapter 1 is about the incomparable Christ. Jesus, God's final word. In these last days, he has spoken his definitive word in Jesus. It's Jesus who is worshipped by the angels he created, the supreme son vested in glory and splendor. I mean, look over chapter 1 here, and you'll notice there are no commands for us to obey in chapter 1. Do you get that? There isn't. There are no commands for us. There's nothing for us to do except just, behold, the Son of God. Behold. We're we're told in chapter 1 that Jesus is the, the Son, the Heir, the Creator, the Sustainer, the exact imprint, the Sustainer. This is our God. And and seven passages from the Old Testament, verses 5 through through 13, uh, testify to these identities as we conclude chapter 1. It's like you're just looking at this brilliant, beautiful, splendid uh, sunset upon the prairie landscape. And what is there for you to do? There's nothing for you to do except to just fix your focus on this splendor and beauty. So there's nothing for you to do in chapter 1. And then we read the word in chapter 2. Therefore. You see it? Therefore. Therefore, in light of who Jesus is, here is what we must do. He is, therefore, we must. And what follows is the very first command that we are given in the sermon to the Hebrews. And the command is not time to tithe. The command is not, you must have perfect attendance in church. The command is not, do more, try harder. That's not the command. The very first command that we are given, that we hear declared in Hebrews is pay closer attention. It's like Jesus is saying to each one of us, Randy, Randy, Bob, Steve, Mary, Sue, look up here. Look up, fix your eyes on me pay attention to me and notice the preacher says notice he uses the word we he doesn't say you now you all need to he says we right we must pay much closer attention we we're in this together we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so hebrews 1 says that god is a talker right? God spoke, and God has spoken. God's a talker, but God is no motivational speaker. TED Talks are informative and inspirational, right? They are. TED Talks, what's the tagline? Ideas worth spreading. Ideas worth spreading. Beloved, God doesn't do TED Talks. He he doesn't do TED Talks. Okay? You see, when God talks, 
solar systems materialize. When God talks, the Red Sea parts. When God talks, Lazarus comes forth from the tomb. God's words are not ideas. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine? You know, Moses meeting God there at the burning bush. Burning bush speaks, go to Pharaoh, tell him, let my people go. Moses says, that's a good idea. <laughs> God doesn't, God's words are not ideas worth spreading. They are realities worth obeying. Amen. That's God's words, you see. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. Especially since the talker is the son the heir, the creator, the sustainer, the exact imprint, the one who holds ultimate reality together by the word of his power. Verse 1 says, lest we drift away from it. Drift. There's the word drift. That's a nautical term. Uh, so, so word picture, think of your soul not as a car on the interstate, that would be us in our contemporary culture, but in the first century, think of your soul as a ship on the ocean or a vessel in the river. And so to drift is to flow past or to be carried off by the current. To drift is to become untethered, to become a castaway. To drift is to slip out of the safety of the harbor or the moorings and to float aimlessly away. To drift is to be under the control of the tide. And here the preacher warns about the danger of drifting from the anchor of the gospel. And the word picture drift has to do with the idea of uh, that which goes carelessly unnoticed. Carelessly unnoticed. So, so while it occurs, the changes are undetectable. Only later do we see the effects. So the word picture drift implies culpability. So I, I was carelessly distracted, and out of my careless lack of attention, that caused me to go adrift. And thus the need for these rumble strips. Rumble strips are meant to, to shake us awake from our sleepy inattention. C.S. Lewis knew something about this. Uh, in his book, Mere Christianity, he wrote, now, faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. For moods will change whatever view your reason takes. Consequently, one must train in the habit of faith. The first step is to recognize the fact that your moods change. And the next is to make sure that if you've once accepted Christianity, then some of its main doctrines shall be deliberately held before your mind, thus the need for memorizing the word, 
And that's why daily prayers and religious readings and church going, being together here in fellowship, that's why it's so necessary as a part of our, our lives. We, he, here's what he said. We have to continually be reminded of what we believe. Ah, pastors too, church. We have to be continually reminded of what we believe. Neither this belief nor any other will automatically remain alive in the mind. It must be fed. And then he asked this question. It's very, very insightful. If you examined a hundred people who had lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by honest argument. Do not most people simply drift away? What do you think? What are the danger zones where you are vulnerable? Danger zones in w- into which you could possibly drift in your life, in your marriage, in your family, financially, ethically, relationally. Where are you flirting? Excuse me. Where are we flirting? Where are we vulnerable? How strong is our desire to respect the rumble strips? Think. Think about people who once walked closely with the Lord but now are not. What is that about? And, and, and church family, I do not ask that question with a a sense of self-righteous, Pharisee-like judging. Because if it weren't for the grace of God, if it weren't for the grace of God in my life. But think about people who once walked closely with the Lord, but now they're not. What's that about? They used to be involved. They used to not just participate, but they used to be an active leader, but now they're not. They don't have anything to do with God. Or his church. And and, and, in my vocation, I'm thinking about pastors who once planted churches, preached Christ, authored books, and led seminars on how to do church. And what's the term? They have deconverted. Deconverted. What? That's just heartbreaking. What causes a soul to drift into deconversion? Well, these rumble strips give us various reasons, so we'll just have to keep listening as the sermon proceeds. But I want us to consider what the text says. And um, careless coasting, careless coasting is why Israel of old drifted. Careless coasting. Pastor, what do you mean by that? Here's what I mean by that. Your soul is strong, your life is strong, your faith is strong. Well, how can you coast? Because you're strong. And, and, and so now the temptation is just to lie back and relax and enjoy the ride, and you can let prayer time go. And, and you don't have to read the Bible, just listen to some worship music and, and just call it a day. And you, you see what I'm saying? The greatest threat to a strong faith is a strong faith. Because at that very moment, we are tempted to feel invulnerable, which leads to careless negligence, which leads to drifting. Beloved, 
God's grace gives our souls security. Yes, yes. God will give what we need to be what he has called us to be and do. But we must do it. God's grace will enable us and reconcile us and restore us and repair us and teach us and change us. God's grace will produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But we must keep in step with the Spirit. There's this, there is a mysterious dance we must acknowledge between God's empowering grace, His secure grace, and our cooperative obedience. And Paul is on to something about this this dance, if you will, when he says in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, as you have always obeyed, work out. He doesn't say work for, he says work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. All of this to say, we don't get to coast. No coasting. You, in your marriage, you can't be a sinner and live with a sinner and coast. In church life, you can't be a sinner and worship with sinners and coast. God is with us. He is. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will give us what we need, but we have to row. We have to set the sail. We have to steer the ship across the sea into battle. And we have to remind ourselves every day of God's amazing grace. And we have to resist the spirit of, of cynicism and discouragement. We have to fight anger. We have to fight fear. We have to fight the what-ifs and the if-onlys. We have to trust that God will always allocate what we need the very moment it is needed. We have to watch and pray so that we don't fall into temptation, which is what Jesus said to his disciples at Gethsemane the night he was crucified the night before. Oh, your car may have hands-free steering, but the ship of your soul needs your hand at the wheel. Our spiritual life is secure in Christ, and this world is not safe. And this side of heaven, we are constantly threatened by temptations. This side of heaven, there's a spiritual war happening. This side of heaven, drifting is a possibility. And, and Christians and pastors must never assume that they have reached a point where they can just retire from healthy spiritual habits. <laughs> and you know, the older I get, the harder it is. Because, because I get tempted with feelings of entitlement. Tempted to feel feelings of arrival. I've put my time in. Don't you know who I am? I mean, sometimes you just have to say something out loud to you know, hear how silly it is, how foolish it is. And to that attitude, the preacher becomes a lawyer in this passage of Scripture and, and marshals 
the lesser to the greater argument. Verse 2, for if the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, that is a reference to Deuteronomy 33, verse 2. It says, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. So according to Acts chapter 7, verse 53, Acts chapter 7, verse 53, um, the, 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 Hebrew, the Hebrew people believed and, and understood Deuteronomy 33, 2, that, that Israel received the law as delivered by angels. Angel. And, and, and uh, Deuteronomy says not 10,000 angels, but 10,000s of angels. And the preacher cries out, if Israel drifted away, having received the revealed truth of God by angels, what do you think is going to happen who neglect to those who neglect the word of Christ who created those angels? The drifting is no innocent matter, especially when there's been so much evidence. And that's verses 3 and 4. So whereas in the Old Testament, God's revelation was mediated by angels and, and then, then, then Moses and then priests and then to the nation, in the New Covenant, the Son Himself gave witness. Jesus took the stand. I and the Father are one. So these verses declare that Jesus is the fountainhead of our faith. That's why it says, it was declared at first by the Lord. At first by the Lord. And Mark 1.39 says Jesus went throughout all Galilee preaching in their synagogues. So, so not only was it declared at first by the Lord, but Hebrews 1.3 says it was attested to us by those who heard. Well, that's the apostles and the eyewitnesses. So Jesus himself gave witness and then those who first heard Jesus give witness, the apostles and eyewitnesses, they passed it along to the preacher and the Hebrews. So, so you see, the congregation and the preacher, they were not eyewitnesses of Jesus, and neither was the preacher. Rather, they came to Christ from the eyewitness testimony of those who were with Jesus. So evidence for Christianity came from Christ himself and then the apostles and then look at verse 4. While God also bore witness by, by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed to the church according to the Spirit's will. So you see you've, there you've got layers of testimony. Uh, Jesus the apostolic word, and then the, the witness of the Spirit-gifted church. And so the phrase, while God also, indicates a present tense, meaning, look, this witness is still continuing because the Holy Spirit has gifted His church. And there are gifts, gifts which validate the revealed truth, not constructed truth, but the revealed truth, the confirmed truth, the validated truth, truth in the flesh, of Jesus. Jesus said, Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So the problem of spiritual drift 
is resolved by a fixed focus on Christ. And that gets us to the solution here. Drift, focus, focus. Please focus on Christ. That's the big idea. Please pay attention to Christ. Focus on Christ. Focus. That word focus means, uh, pay closer attention rather means, to, to be in a constant state of alert. It means to occupy yourself with. Where does your mind go when it settles? Well, it needs to go to Christ. Do you have a training plan such that when your mind settles, it can go to Christ? Focus on Christ. Devote yourself and apply yourself to Christ. A fixed focus on Christ is, is the way to prevent the peril of spiritual drift. And today, September 11th, we remember the significance of a fixed focus. 21 years ago today, at 8.47 a.m., an airliner traveling at hundreds of miles per hour and carrying some 10,000 gallons of jet fuel plowed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center. At 9.03, a second airliner hit the South Tower and fire and smoke billowed upward, steel, glass, ash, bodies fell below. The Twin Towers, where up to 50,000 people worked each day, both collapsed in less than 90 minutes. At 9.37 that same morning, a third airliner slammed into the western face of the Pentagon. At 10.03, a fourth airliner crashed in a field. It had been aimed at either the Capitol or the White House, and it was forced down by the heroic passengers armed with the knowledge that we were under attack. Hmm. Here's what the 9-11 Commission report said. I quote from the executive summary of the 9-11 Commission report. Here it is. The 9-11 attacks were a shock, but they should not have come as a surprise. Hmm. Beloved, the perilous effects of spiritual drift are always a shock, but they should never come as a surprise. So the choice is either drifting or focusing, drifting or drawing near, drifting versus running the race marked out before us, drifting versus considering how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, drifting versus continuing the habit of meeting together. Keep coming back, brothers and sisters. Keep coming back. Keep, even when you don't feel like it, keep coming back. Keep coming back. These verses... Urge us to pay closer attention, to focus on revealed truth, the truth about who Jesus is, what Jesus says, what Jesus has done, the truth that about Jesus that happened historically, the, the, the witnesses who saw him, uh, as Paul said to King Agrippa in Acts 26, 26, King Agrippa, you know about the things that happened to Jesus in Jerusalem that weekend. You know, and then he says this, this was not done in a corner. You know, it's the truth. Truth 
that has been spoken by Jesus, truth that has been uh, handed down to us from the apostles, truth that has been confirmed and established by signs and wonders and miracles and various gifts of the Holy Spirit that you, the church community, have. Yes, God has graciously given you, if you be in Christ, a spiritual gift. And he wants us to utilize our gifts in service to others. What I'm saying is that we are evidence of Christ revealed truth. So when we use our spiritual gift of encouragement, and when we meditate and memorize the Word of God, and when we dedicate time throughout the day in prayer, when we use the gift of mercy, when we show ourselves faithful in small things, when we pray over someone who is hurting, when we bring a bowl of soup to someone who's sick, when we generously give to the work of God, when we lay hands upon those who are sick and broken, when you sit with someone in their suffering, when you still seek God whose ways you can't understand, when you do your work this week with excellence and integrity, when you meet needs with love, when we feed the hungry, when we share the gospel, when we give the bread of life to another beggar, when we stand in the baptistry with one who professes faith with Christ. Beloved, when we do these things, that's not drifting. That's focus. Church family, let's choose to focus. The gospel was first preached by Jesus then received by the apostles, then passed on to us, and it transformed the world. Christianity didn't start last weekend. We're here because the congregation who first heard this sermonic truth experienced life change. It changed their lives. It's changed our lives. It still changes lives. There's no one like Jesus. 